it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week, I catch up with brewer John Stallwood from Nail Brewing. This conversation is equal parts conversation and oral history about the craft beer movement, as John is one of the original figures in the current craft beer scene, getting started brewing in the late 1990s. As you'll hear, it's not been an easy road for John, not least trying to get started before a market for his beer really existed. But an assault in 2004 set him back personally and professionally and required an extended period of recovery before he could get back to brewing. With so much to go over, this is a conversation that is longer than usual, but it's a very good one. John's story is one of friendship, persistence, adaptation, and some very, very good beer. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. John Stallwood, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Great, thanks for the invite. Good to have a beer with you. Oh, mate, actually, it's the first um, interview that I've... Uh, cheers. cheers. It's the first conversation I've had for a long, long, long time uh, that it has involved a beer, which is uh, which is lovely. And it's, it's also great because this has been a conversation that had to take place in person, um, and it's been far too long coming. So uh, really pleased to be here in Perth and uh, having a chat. Great. It's an honour for you to be here. We've known each other for a long time, and experience the journey of craft beer together yeah yeah it, it, it has been a little bit like that although you, you were certainly in the industry well before uh, I was um, but and, and we've I also, am older but yeah uh, and we've butted heads a little bit uh, you know sort of over different topics uh, as, as I know you know a, a lot of people did but let's uh, let's jump into the way back machine and you've been in the industry for over 20 years but now when you say you're older than I am how old are you 50 uh, I'm actually older Ah. I'm 51, so there you go. Yeah, I just okay. discovered you're a little <laughs> bit later than you did. Did you get straight into the brewing industry, or what did you do before the, the, the beer industry? So, Nail's 21, March 23rd this year, 2021, and uh, so it started March 23rd in 2000. I got into home brewing back in 94, and that's where it began, though, the journey. Um, it took a, until 2000 to start the brewery. Uh, it started from me and a mate giving a, a mate a homebrew kit for his birthday, thinking it was you know it was over our budget back then, thinking that you know he'd make us beer, it was a good present. And so, he, so this is ninety four. Ninety four. Okay. So he gave me the homebrew kit. He didn't like it. He did two batches. We never ever tasted it. Gave the homebrew <laughs> kit back to me and said, "You make the beer." So it backfired, but it, it ended up you know as uh, life has progressed taking over my life and I've kind of dedicated my life to beer somewhat but um so, so you were, but you you're in your late t- early 20s um at that stage if I'm doing yeah that. so I was 23 24 and I was studying at Edith Cowan in June de la and what were you studying studying uh business uh major in marketing okay okay that's a, a useful uh useful de- degree to have in the brewing it's not like uh history or literature which uh, some brewers have yeah, so I, I lived at Netherlands Yacht Club as bosun, so I had no neighbours for 500 metres and 
uh, did the clean, did 20 hours a week and my studies. So and I did the cleaning and maintenance and stuff like that. So, but it was good to have my own place. Uh, and the advantage of that is, uh, my mates would come over. And, uh, so once I got the homebrew kit back, I'd make them beer. So it totally backfired and I wasn't the best brewer, but the passion began. And as I was saying, like, I was studying marketing at the time and we came up with the name Nail Ale. Um, back, so this is over a long timeline and, you know, how craft beer is now. Well, craft beer didn't actually exist back then, but how beer is perceived has changed dramatically over those years and also age changes that. So back then we used to say, uh, let's get hammered. We're young and, um, learning. And, uh, so the name Nail Ale was my original name. And when I, how it looks is the N-A-I-L, but the I is the actual symbol of the nail. Yep. And I, to make that, to make that logo, um, we didn't really have computers back then. So I cut out of the West Australian, the word sale and used the letters A-L-E and pasted it and then used the, um, A and the L to make the word nail, but drew the N and the, um, nail myself. So the original, tr- and then in, because people kept, um, liking, stealing my posters, um, ordering t-shirts, drinking my beer, I registered the trademark in 94 and the original trademark registered. You can see that it was, the nail was, the N was hand, hand drawn and the nail was hand drawn. <laughs> But the original cut and paste back in '95. So it was really hand, like handmade, not just the beer, the the the, the marketing and the logo. Yeah, well, it's this old school home brewing, I guess. Now they've got um, better equipment and better technology, and they're a bit luckier. But um, yeah, that's how it began. So, what was it about home brewing? You know, I, I presume it was like a the equivalent of a Cooper's kit, you know, kit and kilo, or yeah. Something along those lines. What was it about brewing that inspired you or, or, or drew you in? It took time for passion to grow where it eventually became my main focus in life and overread pretty much everything. Um, even, you know, when, once it overtook me, like when I would begin a relationship, I'd say, you understand, like, nails my life. I've, you know, like, <laughs> to let people know how, you know, full on I'd focused my life into beer but um so the passion grew so i guess from home brewing but the beer wasn't good consistently and i needed a lot to learn on and have the passion of uh seeing people be able to buy it so then came um i did finish my degree did a bit of traveling to us came back um and i read a beer book and realized that i had to well, I, need, I realized I needed to learn a lot more about beer and Laurie Strawn. Strawn? Yeah, he wrote the first beer book I ever read, How to Brew Beer or something like that. I can't remember the name. But I wrote to him and he gave us um, advice. He said, contact the University of Ballarat and also look at uh, Brewer's Workshop as a software package. So I did both. I went to the University of Ballarat, flew over there, said, you know, we'd love to do the, the course here. And they... Hadn't done the course for a long, for 10 years or something. They had a 100 litre pilot set up, but only used it for their science classes. I think 10 years earlier, must have been around the Matilda Bay time, they must have used it for education. Yep. 
Um, so, but it was available there, just hadn't had, hadn't had a brewing program. So I was very lucky they let me do honours in science and my project was development of a full-strength ale. And Rob Gregg at the time, um, you know, he, he you know, let, let me be able to do uh, this course without having a science degree. So I had, did honours without a science degree. So it was somewhat hard, but I um, was lucky to have the opportunity and grateful for University of Ballarat for that today still. I'm constantly amazed at the stories. Um, you know, you, you look at how much the industry has changed in 10 years, you know, or five years even, um, and, and, and you're looking back to a time when there wasn't even a brewing course um, that, that you could tap into that you've... Well, even like the the other thing Laurie suggested was Brewer's Workshop, my software package. So I got it on a three and a half inch disc <laughs> and uh, I think it worked on Vista, but then around early 2000s, mid 2000s, I couldn't use it on the software they had. So I had to get an IT person to go into DOS and be able to set it up so that this software would work on modern day computers and every time I got a new computer I had to pay them to transfer everything across <laughs> but um so yeah technology's changed the industry's changed it's been it's uh you know it's 25 years I guess of the journey so at what point though did you decide to go from just making beer for your mates and presumably a lot of that was around the cheap stubby um and and, and impressing your mates with the, the beer that you're making um, so we're very lucky in WA. Uh, so back, Matilda Bay was the first, or Sail and Anchor was the first, first microbrewery in Australia in 1983 in Fremantle. And then Matilda Bay came from that. And that same group of people started Little Creatures. So we had the original microbrewery. We had the America's Cup in 87, which brought a lot of internationals here, a lot of international beers. And so we had started to have a few microbreweries pop up in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, the ones that are still around from the early 90s are Last Drop and Bootleg. They are probably the only two that still exist today. But we had early craft beer tradition. And um, from that, that got me kind of a little bit more of an understanding of variety of beer. And uh, as I learned more, I just became um, more passionate about it. What point did you decide to that you didn't want to do the marketing that you studied for, and you actually wanted to? Because there were no real, apart from you know, one or two, a handful of breweries. It it was a bit of an impossible dream to go professionally brewing. I, I would have imagined. Yeah, well, I wasn't the best student in my life, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I don't know when the day happened, but um. Then, you know, by the time I went to, was in Ballarat, I realised that I was on my journey, that my goal was to start a brewery. And actually, probably before that, probably around even registering the trademark, it was where I realised that I had a goal to do something. But the passion became super strong the more I put my time and life into it, particularly when it became commercial and I could see people buying it. And uh, that was kind of an exciting time. What was it about, what was it that led you to do that though? You know, is, is it seeing people drink your beer or is it seeing this potential for, for, for beer that other people weren't seeing and you just felt that you had the, the chance to be an early mover or? No, I think um, I'm very lucky 
on my journey. Um, I say I'm friends of the beer gods, uh, and they kind of they look after me. Um, I have the right people around me at different times of my life that have uh, great input, and uh, so I've had a very exciting journey. It's been hard, but um, a lot of support over all those years from uh, not just family, but you know a lot of uh, smart people giving us advice and helping me on that path. Um, friend of the God, beer gods is something that I might steal. It, it, it sounds much more modest than I I'd often say that you know, beer is my superpower. In, I, I, there, there's just something about beer that drives me that nothing else ever does and uh, it enables me to like have conversations like this that I wouldn't have in any other walk of life. We've got followed the same path. We're on the same path. We have just uh, beer has taken over our life. We've kind of dedicated our life to beer. It's been hard journey from the beginning was for all of us would have been like extremely tough um you know on both your side you you weren't making money for a long time and uh likewise with, <laughs> Assuming with, that i am now <laughs> nail and uh like when nail first started i had people that um would say to me like you make money from selling this um this is a beer um, things like that were it was very tough because everyone drank lagers back then they had no education there was no such word as craft beer it was called boutique beer back then um and so it was a i was fighting a hard um journey with beer and you know that's you know a, a part of the beer life i guess you say that it was called microbrewing or boutique beer and let's talk about that because we'll discuss nail brewing but the first that I really came to be aware of you was actually through the website that you administered that was um, microbrewing.com.au that was a bit of, it was a precursor to anything that's going on these days. It was before Beer and Brewer, it was before Crafty Pint, it was before Brews News um, and it was kind of, you would grab any stories that you could find on beer and repost them you would sort of uh you know talk a little bit about yourself um you know what was your plan for that that must have been about around 2005 or 6 i think now i started in 2000 had a bad accident 2004 and it took me a couple of years to re- recover and then when i restarted the world the economy had boomed and i lost everything so i couldn't have my brewery again and i became a gypsy brewer but I needed to make money, and one of the ideas uh, that was microbrewing.com.au where I had this website that it was more about the industry um, and then where it had, uh, you know, problems with the industry. We had excise, we had things like uh, keg problems, um, we had job, people wanting jobs. It gave contacts to people in the brewing industry from, you know, so uh, gave some suppliers information so when you put it like that it sounds like bruce news (laughs) in in, in some ways but but i didn't um, i didn't have the the journalism skills like you did and it's more for well you are for the industry but um it was more just a start on directions i guess and uh then you know you and crafty pint uh popped up similar time and I was linking news. I had a news section on it and link you guys yep. to it and a few other ones. So um, to help educate people and 
And uh, so I tried that, and that was working, starting to work quite good. Uh, Don't but, tell me that we came along and ruined it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, it was starting to add up, but in 2008, I was gypsy brewing at Edith County, Hugh Dunn. I was there for five years, so between that 2008 and 2013 or 12, uh, so maybe it was there 2007, but um, uh, Hugh Dunn said, look, you've got lots of good ideas, but none are going anywhere. And he's right, you've got to focus on one. And uh, so I eventually realised that I had a few good ideas, they were all going nowhere, and I just realised that my focus was now and I've got to get back onto just that. And so Michael Brewing, it was kind of sad to let go. A couple of other things, I kind of let him go and concentrated on now. Even doing something like that, and I can sympathise with you because it is all-consuming trying to stay across everything in the brewing world. Um, but it also highlights, so if you launched that in 2004, the Crafty Pint uh, launched in 2010 as well? Yeah, no, it was later. 2005? It was, it, 2004 was my accident. Okay. Then I had a year... Or two recurring, so it would have been probably between 2006 to 2008, but probably, yeah, 2006 to 2007. But it's interesting because what we now call the craft brewing industry was still not the craft brewing industry. Um, So it was at some stage between then that microbrewing gradually took on this name craft brewing. Yeah, so I can remember in a Wobber meeting, Boutique Beer was the name of craft beer back then and the big breweries are using it and we wanted to differentiate ourselves from there so as the u.s had already set that path with craft beer we said let's not use boutique beer let's separate from the big breweries and talk, call it craft beer so that was a decision made in Wobba in the early early 2000s and um uh so and then craft beer took Education in beer was a long, long journey. Um, you guys have been a key to that. Now people know what craft beer is, whether they like it or hate it. Um, it's, it's everyone understands what the word means, or somewhat. No one has a definition of it, but um, of craft beer. But uh, we know it's somewhat what it is. <laughs> well, look. You've talked about your accident a couple of times. We can't and we can't move on without sort of uh, talking a little bit about that. So let's step back. And you did the your masters in in science with uh, with brewing. And I take it after that you founded Nail Brewing. Yeah. So I finished uh, yeah honors in science and then came back to Perth in '99. Uh, and I had this proposal to set up a hundred liter brewery. Same as I was using University of Ballarat and put it in someone's pub and get some help. So I wrote some proposals and one person I gave it to and his uh, brother-in-law, Saab with Morris Brockwell, um, was a friend, dad's friend. So he arranged a meeting. I could meet up with Morris Brockwell to get advice on how to what I should do. And so I had this proposal. Morris Brockwell, he... Uh, I didn't know the man that well but he changed my life uh, unfortunately he passed away in the, his early 50s in I think about 2003 but he was um, a big he imp, he made it such a big he got my foot in the door in my life on the nail red can it's got brewed in memory of Morris Brockwell so Morris Brockwell he started all the 
theme pub, Irish theme pubs in Australia. He had 23 pubs, had the Rosie O'Grady's, Brady O'Reilly's, Elephant Wilborough, uh, Moon and Sixpence, and Bobby Dazzler's. And I had a meeting with him at Bobby Dazzler's, which is in the Perth CBD corner of Murray and William Street. At the time, it doesn't exist anymore, but um, he gave me his time, which was, you know, someone that um, important that was, I was very lucky. But from that moment, he offered me to, he said, he give me advice about the proposal, how I can improve it, but how about put it in Bobby Dazzler's? And um, so he put, got my foot in the door. And because um, he, it was a, um, Morris Brockway had a bit of distribution and my parents uh, financially backed us a little bit to help buy a bigger kit, a 600 litre kit, rather than make my own. That would have been huge back then. Yeah, so DME, but we're, we've got the second DME system in Australia, that DME, which include an employee called Brendan Varis. <laughs> um, the, um, Who will feature again in this story. I've got their equipment and the first brewery was installed at the Black Stump in Kalgoorlie, which unfortunately failed, but that equipment then went to Colonial many years later. And then from there, it might have gone to Boston, I think. But um, and then I'm not too sure from the path. But um, so the one in Bobby Dazzler's installed for now was the second DME system in Australia, and then they they helped grow the industry, um, selling their brew pub setups. But um, so that started um in uh March 23rd. Nile started commercially producing it um and selling it through Morris's pubs to start with. Okay. How long were you operating and, you know, what, what was the original take-up? Actually, I have a million questions. What was the first beer? What, what did you launch with? Was it the Nail Ale, the Australian so, Pale Ale? So when I studied at University of Ballarat, I did development of full-strength ale. The beer, I did similar beers with different colour, similar beers with different alcohol levels, similar beer with uh, different bitterness, and then all different flavours, and, and then did... Um, Institute of Brewing Distilling test to work out um, what people liked, and the basically the result came up with they like lagers, they like it, like it light, sweet, and um, clear. Now ale was an Australian pale ale. It was uh, you know people back then thought it had too much flavour, where t- today um, they see it as a beer that's mainstream. Um, so it was a light beer, a little little bit of uh, cloudiness. Well, that kind of developed over time. We added a bit of cloudiness, but um, and these um, days we call it a hazy boy. So, so, so were you the OG hazy boy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Coopers would have been that, but um, uh, yeah, no, it was um, so it was an Australian powwow, and that was today now seen as mainstream. Where back then it was uh, too much flavour. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think so. Okay, so so you started with that. You started Nail, and you had your six hundred liter um, brew house. So yep. tell us how were things going? How was the take up in those early days? Because again, like six hundred liters was a big brew house in in the early two thousands. Over the, my whole life, the answer will be hard. <laughs> um, until somewhat recently, it's still hard. But back then, it was extremely hard, and I worked long hours. Had to like mash in at 4 a.m. Uh, made no money. Had to kind of ration my money to be able to get petrol and stuff like that. It it didn't add up. So all I did was sell wholesale beer. And I've learnt today. Um, well, actually, some someone from a bigger brewery came in and said, 
um, to me we've you know done the calculations and your brewery setup doesn't add up and they were were they being nice about it uh, they were nice about it they were they were doing having samples down the bottom and but it hurt me and but they were correct because it didn't add up but ironically Matilda Bay shut down from WA went over east I think it's still I'm not sure what's happening over there with Matilda Bay but and then Swan Brewery the other big brewery in WA is no longer here so Nails still here today and <laughs> screw you big brewer <laughs> what they didn't realize is um it didn't add up financially but passion kept it alive um and uh so uh yeah hopefully one day it will add up for for me totally but <laughs> it's a well it's a life well brewed we'll talk about what the accident was um how, how long had you been going and had you started to be making forward progress uh, accident was uh, April the 9th, uh, 2004, on Good Friday. Nail was still was growing and struggling, um, but going forward, you know, it's getting more pubs. The people are starting to get some loyal um, customers, um, independent away from uh, the Brockwell group, who were great support or all the time but um like Clancy's is one and they still support support us today with their four pubs but um so no it was it was hard work it didn't add up it was you know it was one of the first breweries in Australia that's I guess still around today I think there was there was something like 20 something breweries in Australia so there weren't many around at the time where now there's whatever 700 or something i don't know you probably know the number do you based on the numbers that we've got at the moment there's about 500 physical breweries where beer is made producers license yeah um yeah yeah okay stainless steel owning breweries yeah well that's a good question but we can um talk about that as we get to where now is today i guess yeah so okay so 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 that's where you were now just talk us through through the accident i know it's been covered in in some places but it's pivotal to your story Unfortunately, I was in. Uh, there's an argument between three girls and a bloke um, late at night. I didn't know. Um, tried to break up the argument. Well, uh, first of all, I was protecting the three girls, and they started hitting the bloke, and then uh, was protecting the bloke, and then I got cowed punched by a friend of the three girls, and um, unfortunately, you know, uh, had swelling of the brain. But it, so, so, so you 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 were knocked over and hit, hit your skull. Yeah. So. The guy, I was on the ground. Um, I can't remember any of this, but this is like police reports and stuff. Uh, my friend Gareth Tarrant and the other bloke that I didn't know um, went and caught the bloke that hit me. Um, there's a beer called Gareth Skywalker. I brew that for Gareth because he loves Star Wars and we released it the last month, but we release it like every year pretty much. Um, so I made that beer for him, but he, he caught the bloke which ended up giving me closure being able to have mediation with him but um so the bloke was caught but uh, then the police saved my life they said you've got to go to hospital you've got to get in the ambulance can't go home so they saved my life because i would have gone home and died because it was a long weekend and friends had gone away uh so i went to Fremantle hospital they saved my life um they because you actually had a fractured skull badly fractured skull uh, no i didn't have a fractured skull okay. i had a um bleeding but 
I had internal bleeding, which you couldn't see. Because, again, I've only ever seen the photos of yeah. where the, the skull cap that you now saw. So I assumed that the skull had been fractured. Yeah, no. So then they realised, they did a CAT scan, realised I had swelling of the brain. They said my life sent me to Sir Charlie Gardner Hospital. And Dr. Jess and Dr. Watson, who Flaming Lamington's named after and released later this year again uh, in Cairns for the first time. But uh, they... And the health team saved my life. Um, I was very lucky. Unfortunately, it happens too much in society. At the time, David Hooks had been coward punched about three months earlier and passed away. I was very lucky to be alive and very lucky to have two kids today. Uh, uh, Tarzan and Clayton, 10 and 8-year-old sons. Um, so that I'm lucky to be alive, but it, um, I was in a coma for eight or nine or ten days and um, then woke up with my family surrounding my bed and big hole in half the top half left half of my head and uh, unable to talk and but lucky to be alive so it was a long it's a long story to explain it but so it took a lot, lot time long time to recover two years kind yeah, of to just to jump in mm. I mean going back um, what 12, 13 years when I was editing Beer and Brewer um, and you sent me the photos because we were looking at doing a story about it then and you sent me the photos of the damage to your, your, your skull, the cap that mm. had gone in and stuff like that and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest it was an, it was incredibly confronting yeah, um, it was the biggest, to see it was, it was the, very hard to write about yeah it was the biggest Dr Jess when I met up with him I don't know, 18 months later or something, I can remember him saying it's the biggest he's ever cut in someone's head. He cut a little hole, my brain swelled out. He cut another hole, my brain swelled out. He cut another hole, my brain swelled out. And he thought I was going to die, but with swollen brain like a, you know, swelling outside the skull. But um, so I was very lucky, yeah. Obviously a long recovery period and the, the brewery that, you, that you'd established was sold during that period, I understand. Yeah, so my brewery... At the time, there was the, the Mad Monk in Fremantle and they bought my equipment and for some reason, ironically, they changed it to the Monk. <laughs> so, but I just say that to make it sound better. But um, they changed from the Mad Monk to the Monk. Uh, they bought my equipment um, and unfortunately, the Monk's now closed down and for sale, I think. But I actually um, didn't realise that because I, I, I went to the Monk when it was opening and I'm trying to think of the name of the... Brewer who was there at oh was it Paul Paul I think it was Paul yeah, yeah. they've well, had some great brewers come through the monk and oh, even before yeah. even before they opened when they were looking at having this integrated offering yeah. of making bread mm. from the spent grain I, I did yeah. not realise that that's where your brewery had ended up yeah a lot of the breweries from the monk um, you know Justin was another one moved from the monk to the colonial and there was a you know development stage in WA Brewers we had uh, Hugh Dunn training. Like, there's not many great... Like, you can Google an answer for brewing, but you don't get the right answer where Hugh Dunn, he's, uh, like, the perfect... Uh, he can give... He's like a... He understands brewing, and when I ask a question, he can describe it, and I don't really understand what he's saying, but I get the answer. <laughs> and he's taught many of WA's great brewers over for many years, and um, a lot went went through the monk and the colonial and they're spread around the world today and just to continue a theme you've named a beer after him yes <laughs> Hughes Dunbrown which was uh 
most of the water beer in 2014. We only brew it every few years now. I haven't brewed it for a little bit, but um, it was uh, uh, the most I've ever seen uh, Brendan Varas drunk when he was drinking that. <laughs> Brendan Varas is one of the best beer judges in the world, and how I would see what he thought of a beer would be how much he drank of it. <laughs> And he drank a lot uh, at the beer festival in 2013. <laughs> These questions are always hard, hard to ask, but you went through head and brain injury, recovery, losing your brewery that you'd struggled to, to, to establish. How, how did you go through that period? Well, I was lucky I recovered, and it was like a year of not... Like seven months I had a hole in my head. I had to wear a bike helmet and... Then I got titanium put in my head. Um, a year, I just concentrated on my health, breweries sold, and but then it took another year to just get used to doing things again. But what hurt me with the most back in about 2004 to 2006 is WA economy boomed like like no no ever like it just. Um, I was looking before at a possible property in the Swan Valley for 500000 and then after the boom, it was $1.2 million. And it was like how like it became too expensive to kind of restart. Um, so that was a bit heartbreaking, and that's where I became a gypsy brewer. But um, on the positives on that path, um, well, I went to Jarrajacks for a little bit, and but that's how I met Hugh Dunn, who taught me a lot about brewing he says i'm not good enough to be one of his students but i worked under him for five years like he said you're not good enough to be one of his students yes (laughs) what Um, what does he mean by that well uh, he he, hugh dunn's a joker like myself but he his students understand the science more i guess where i'm an artist brewer you're like me you're you're a humanities student Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> and so I l- listened to Hugh and learned a lot off him, and I think he definitely appreciates that and can see the results. But um, I couldn't understand the science side. Um, even though I do have honours, you've in got honours in science. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was more self-taught reading books, but uh, under Hugh, I learned more. Um, he did explain a lot to the science, but it was like I really aren't good enough to be one of his students but I you know learnt to brew the best beers in the world and um back since 2007 2008 Nail started cleaning up in beer awards and it hasn't stopped since (laughs) just to get the plug in there (laughs) tell because some of the awards like your stout the the, the, the Nail R which was the beer that again if you go back 15 years was the, the the benchmark around that style but then your the, the nail stout was a beer that really defined the, the, the brand as craft started becoming the, the 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 beer brand craft beer yeah so nail stout in the late 2000s um and then clout stout kind of popped up at 2010 no, don't, don't worry we'll, we'll talk about clout stout but um it, clout stout's oatmeal stout and it yeah it, it did very good in Beer Awards um, in Sydney and and um, and Perth. Oh, it was Perth. I'm trying to remember when Perth started, but uh, you know Perth had started then. And um, ARBA, but probably Hugh Dunn did better and Clatsdale did better ARBA. But um, it started. Now was more known for its stouts in the 
um, late 2000s. Nail Ale was also known, and we did great volume through Nail Ale until it died off. And But then our Hoppy Bees came in, and VPA is the present winner. Apropos of nothing, but the, the, the Red Ale. Um, <laughs> every time I come over here um, and we catch up, we seem to find the Red Ale, and I'm always impressed with just how drinkable a 6% multi-red beer is. Yeah, so that that came in... Brewcourt started in 2012. We, we might come back to Brewcourt because I do want to talk about Clout Stout because, again, I still remember getting sent a first bottle of Clout Stout and I think it was after the Crown Ambassador Reserve and it was, it, it was before the IPA arms race. It was before the, you know all of the hype-driven beers, but there was just this brief period where ultra-luxury beers um, like Crown Ambassador Reserve. So this would have been 2008, I think, they launched that, and it was around about 2009 that you brought out Clout Stout, 2010. Uh, so Clout Stout was bottled on um, March 22nd, uh, 2010, two days before my son was born. Okay. Um, for Nail's 10th birthday, which is the next day. Right, okay, because it, like, again, I tried that and it was just, you know, and if, I'm not saying this because you're here, because you can go back and read the articles I wrote about it then, and it was just gobsmackingly good. It was an amazing beer. And I've actually got about eight bottles of the first vintage that I'm cellaring for when you next come to Queensland, we can do a dinner. Well, of that um, 2010 cut, it was a great batch. Um, well, they're all great batches and they age well because they're bottle conditioned and high alcohol. But the 210 was a special one, but I only made 300 bottles and I drank them all too soon. And then like people asked, like, how long do you age this for? <laughs> and I, I had to end up buying from Victoria 12 bottles back that I'd sold, getting sent back to WA, which I still got probably... Probably got six left. Okay. Um, from of the two ten, um, and it's still aged well today. It's a bit inconsistent as carbonation, but um, because that was the first time I'd done the bottle conditioning um, on that B and didn't want to do the wastage, and I probably didn't get the circulation too good. So it, the the whole bottle process was inconsistent with carbonation. It's not the best, but um, it uh, was a great beer. Oh, it, it just uh, amazing. Like again, it was one of those beers that, in you know, twenty years of drinking beer, I absolutely remember having mm, great. that beer Thanks. for the first yeah. time. So it's, it's just one of those truly memorable beers, and I, I do. So when when you come to Brisbane, um, I'm sorry to all of the listeners that have to listen to this because unless you're in Brisbane, you won't be able to try it. But we do have some of the uh, 10, 11 year old version now. Yeah. Okay. Great. We'll probably have. A clout stat tonight too. You know, what was the thinking around that time? Because as I said, it was before craft beer, the arms races of hype and standing out really um, did. It was was looking to try and extend the quality that beer could find without, you know, creating, you know, without novelty, without hype, just trying to see what malt, water, hops and yeast could be. Hops weren't... A big part in Australia then, and um, where now they're kind of the key for craft beer. But uh, back then, that really pushed the level with um, malt and flavour. Uh, Clout Stout was, uh, you know, one of the pioneers of it. There was um, Ferrell's 
Boris. And um, uh, in Tasmania, the Moobrew had one too. Um, so, yeah, the, it was... Um, yeah, the the stouts, yeah. So so mm. the Russian Imperial Stout was almost as big as beer could go unless you wanted to go to the um, Sam, Sam Adams, yeah. uh, Aventinus and the Icebox and things like yeah. that. But, you know, that, that was as big as beers would go and it was the... It, it helped educate people a lot. Um, one, that beer can be expensive, you know, like yeah, it's age and it's a lot of work and, like, you use a lot more ingredients to get... Um, lesser volume, you age it. Um, if it's not up to scratch, you don't sell it. Um, which, well, I guess all beer is, but it's not as expensive to dump. But it's very educational to people to appreciate that. Not that everyone liked Clout Stout, but they learned really quick that um, beers can be as strong and as high alcohol as that. And it was a beer that, uh, you know, I, I, I always. I'm concerned that uh, it sounds like I'm rubbishing beer, but there are beers that are about the experience of having consumed them. And uh, a lot of the early Brewdog, you know, when Brewdog was doing their ice beers and taking them up to 30%, I describe them as like parachuting or abseiling, where it's the adrenaline rush of having it, or these days what we would say, the fear of missing out, you know, the, the fact you've had this beer. But they weren't beers that you drank for the pleasure, for the simple pleasures oh, yeah. of drinking them. Well, and Nail Stout was one of those beers that I rate with. Yeah, I think like Brewdog were very good at marketing and Nail was used a bit of guerrilla marketing and gimmick marketing over its time too, um, like with the Antarctic Nail Well, I, I, I was but, going to ask you about that. So, but, yeah. so similar to that where it, it creates um name for the brand it did it on good causes and stuff like that so they had i think um brew dog had that battle with between breweries and each time Shard the Horst, oh, was it Shard Horst? i think the brewery time was, the yeah, alcohol got higher yeah. and higher and that created um it was educational for um uh, people you know seeing beer alcohol go that high but it was good publicity for the breweries but that was the point i was making is that the clout stout was a beer that it was a sublime pleasure to drink. Like it wasn't yeah, about. It was a special beer, so it was still in balance. It was still drinkable. You would sip it like yeah. a, a good port, but it wasn't about the enamel scraping hops or the. I see it as a great gift. With you give it to someone, and you share it with them. Um, it comes in a seven fifty ml bottle, high alcohol, like ten to twelve percent, and you sip on it. Like a bit like a wine, um, a bit warmer, and enjoy it together because it's more expensive too. It's on a, usually a special occasion um, to celebrate something. Yeah, it's something you share with someone special. So let, let's talk a little bit about because you weren't averse. You know, maybe it was your marketing background, but you weren't averse to a little bit of gimmick marketing, including making a beer with uh, ice from a Antarctic uh, iceberg. Yeah, so. My brother-in-law, Kevin McGinty, he's been on the Sea Shepherd three times, I think. So Antarctic Noel is the world's most expensive beer, but the only reason for that is it was a gimmick beer to raise money for the Sea Shepherd, which sold, the Sea Shepherd sold 30 bottles or, or profit, or, or every cent went to them of the 30 bottles, and it raised over $30,000. Um, one bottle sold for $1,850 to it, a doctor in New South Wales at the time and 
most bottles sold between eight hundred and twelve hundred dollars. So it was um, a gimmick be to raise money for the Sea Shepherd. The gimmick was kind of that it was ice from the Antarctic was brought back by my brother-in-law um, and melted down and brewed it in Edith Cowan's uh, pilot plant and made thirty bottles uh, and a couple of others for the uh, people who helped. But um, so that money was um you know a good razor for the sea chef and it raised lots of money it got us lots of publicity it, 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 the the it went on bloomberg and it was like uh my phone was super hot and uh <laughs> it it was good for now it's still if you uh google it you it'll come out as well as the most expensive beer and i would hazard i would be willing to bet that it didn't appear on bruce news because even then uh 10 years old uh, i might have run I the media release um but yeah like it's one of those I think, the I, whiff I of, think it was special i think you would have uh, had to google it myself because we have a long relationship <laughs> and not much was happening in beer at the time i reckon you would have um, being behind <laughs> it's it, but, <laughs> but but it might have been actually if you started to tend to say it might have been two oh nine or something that was happened. It might have been a little bit too early. It, I might yeah. have been. Oh no, Antarctic Ale archives, Bruce News. So Bruce News does have an Antarctic Ale, Antarctic Ale on eBay. Uh, I'm not sure whether I buy. It. Here, here we go. Okay, so yeah. th- th- this is December third, twenty ten. We could have a fight here. No, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Which shows, yeah. look, it shows a certain degree of consistency in the Brews News approach. I'm not sure whether I buy into the whole most expensive beer in the world claim of Nails Brewing Antarctic Ale. I don't know that you can compare retail prices with one of charity auctions, and it's impossible to track the prices of other beers sold in this way. But there is no doubt that, and then that's the read more, so I'll see what it says. But there is no doubt that there has been tremendous support for John Storwood's project in aid of the Sea Shepherd. If you're interested in how the beer is made from the Antarctic iceberg, you now have your own chance to buy a bottle of Antarctic ale on eBay. So I was, I was, this is when you were selling it. So even then, like the, the whiff of um, hype, uh, I, I, hopefully I supported it. Oh, well, that's, the, that's what it was, and it raised the money and it's great for the Sea Shepherd. So yeah, oh, that's ab- the absolutely. Truth. Fact, I don't hide... That it wasn't a gimmick yeah. and it wasn't a fundraiser. Um, that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it was a special beer, like um, made from ice from Antarctic, brought back to Perth, and raising money for the Sea Shepherd and raising that much money makes it special. Let, let's talk about that. Though. How hard is it to stand out in the gimmick stakes these days, when to some extent the industry is gimmick driven? Um, yeah, well... What, did back, you accept that, that point? Like, back, did you accept so, that, to some extent, there is an element of the industry that is trying I, to I stand out? I have a out? few problems with it. Um, there's some things that happen, but in the early 2000s, we did things also like we had the nail pack where we'd get a bus, and we did it a few times with the cricket and the AFL, and we'd buy 65 to 100 tickets, and we'd have nail shirts on, and then at half-time, we'd... Be, pull out these inflatable hammers and the first time we did it it we saw ourselves on the big screen hitting each other with the inflatable hammers and um and it got lots of attention in the crowd but uh and now you know got on tv and my friend in england saw it and stuff but they got more onto gimmicks like that and then we kept doing it years on and but they would not record us they'd kind of hide us from the getting recorded to the TV land. But um, so that kind of gimmick uh, 
uh, failed over time. It changed. Uh, problem, uh, I guess the, there's a lot of false advertising out there. It's, don't want to slog, um, put someone down either because like, um, there's businesses put their heart into it, whether, you know, family, it's everything to them. But, um, some use marketing wrong and say lies and it frustrates me. Um, people need to just like think about it a little bit more and, um, look into it if, if things like that are true. Okay. You know, what, what is your advice to people that, you know, because you, you obviously need to stand out, you need to create a brand, you need to have, you know, we all need a gimmick. But at the same time, you know, like Antarctic Owl was a gimmick for your... That was a fundraiser, yeah. I don't But, but it was a gimmick for a core range beer. Breweries don't need a gimmick to... They can't have a gimmick to have a a brand, to create a brand, you know, it takes time um, and money and uh, or both uh, uh, or a lot of time. But, um, yeah, you just basically, uh, I don't know, there's no answer, but it's good quality beers needed and support from friends and family and everyone involved and it's a long journey. Yeah, a bit of uh, some creative ideas can get publicity and that will help, yeah. So let, let's talk about, you know, as, as you, you, you moved on, um, there was a formation of Brewcorp. Um, tell us the story of, and, and it, it, it's quite a story, so I'll let you tell it in your own words. So back in 2011, Brendan Varus. So there's two Brendans in my life. Brendan Varus, he's bad Brendan. Uh, he's feral. <laughs> and then there's Brendan Grimmer, who's now he's good Brendan. But... Uh, Bad Brendan, Brendan Varus, he, him and me in 2011 came up with the concept of Brew Corp, which basically we both couldn't afford a brewery, um, but together we formed a joint venture. But at that stage he had Swan Valley. So Brendan had the Swan Valley. Wanted to expand. That was doing good. It was very good timing in that the Australian dollar when we bought equipment was to dollar uh, ten, like so we got good buy on equipment, so that was timed at lucky in the economy, and um, it was we Brandon worked for DME. I'd always used DME equipment, and so DME let us be the guinea pig when it first started. That's where Chinese kind of breweries started getting into the market, and DME or maybe they were probably before that, but DME looked at a guinea pig brewery to be made in China and we were the guinea pig brewery. Um, so we got a good good Australian dollar price, good cheap brewery and we had a, brew court had a 5,000 litre um, brew house. We ran our company separate but used brew corp to make a uh, good quality beer at the lowest price. By so it was essentially venture. a joint venture between Nail and feral yeah to so when, buy the brew house yeah that you then had so, so originally we were 50 50 feral 50 nail 50 um brendan and me were both hands-on they had swan valley um feral were i don't know they were probably five times bigger now so i was brewing edith cowan and back then the excise cap was you can brew thirty thousand liters to get ten thousand rebate otherwise you lose it so Edith Cowan were very good to us. They said, we'll let you break the excise, not get the excise cap if you brew um, 55,000 litres, which so 
that helped that 2011 step. I moved from the 30,000 litres to the um, 55,000 litres. So that was pretty much hands-on all by me while setting up Brew Corp. But then I had a, I then that was the first brewer I actually trained in. Steve Waring, who works now at King Road. So Brendan and me were both working extremely hard. Uh, I had my second child, Clayton, um, Clayton Brew, who this will be named after. Um, <laughs> he was born at the, in 2012 uh, at the same time Brew Corp was starting. But So Brendan and me worked long hours. It was very hard. We were both hands-on. Over that time, Brendan got, as they got really a lot, you know, their volume grew a lot. Uh, he moved away. He's still hands-on, maybe mash in, but then had people helping. And because we'd start the day very early and get the brews started and then the, um, the feral brewers would come in, or feral brewers, should I say. So he brought his mahine in from the Swan Valley. When I first bottled now, it was at Edith County University and we did, there were 24 bottle cartons, but... Um, me and my mum and my dad would do like six cartons an hour and uh that where when the first mahine came in i think we did might have been half a pallet in an hour um then we got two mahines at brew corp that's the next step and then we so um edith can was three people the first mahine was four people and then i think we got seven for two two mahines together and that would do uh, a pallet an hour which is about with about 100 cartons an hour and then we got brew corp two we can do about uh 400 500 cartons an hour so, so could, evolution of because that was the machines. thing you yeah. you both invested in a brewery grew out of that within what a year 18 months it did so brew corp one was at our one collier road we moved in 2016 to 323 Collier Road, it's 350 metres up the road, it's quite an expensive move. Um, Brewcorp 1 was um, about 850 square metres, where Brewcorp 2 was uh, 2000, is, still runs today, 2,700 square metres of 500 square metres undercover and um, another shed next book store for packaging. So, but with growing, as breweries get bigger, wholesale beer doesn't make really any money. It's low profit margin, and but growth and you know like our that paying the rent for that area was massive. Paying the loans, Brandon and me were both financially stressed. Uh, I think uh, I don't know if to get into numbers, but um, uh, his numbers were five times bigger than me, and I we were both just like stressed as you can get financially. We were doing. We were working long hours. It was very. This is for Brewcorp too, or both. So, so talk us through because that was the the, the venture um, that you were in when um, Feral came to be sold. Um, so, so there was a process that you had to go through with Brendan uh, around. Yeah. That. Well, before Feral was sold, Brendan and me, um, like I met him from Bobby Dazzler's days when he helped install the DME equipment back in two thousand or nineteen ninety nine. Um, and we knew each other, uh, but and we were friends, associates before Brewcourt started in 2011, 2012. But we became best friends because we both had the same goals. We both respected each other for um, how hard we worked and the beers we brewed. 
Um, so it was because it was such a, it was like a war we were fighting together, and um, though we had our arguments, it never really to do with the business. It was more to do with industry stuff rather than the business. Um, not many relationships in businesses uh, get on good. I think Brennan and mine has got stronger the longer we've gone, and um, we only actually had a you know kind of handshake agreement, but. Um, we survived together until the end, and that included. So when Brewcorp, we moved to Brewcorp two in two thousand and sixteen. About two thousand and seventeen, I just come back from China and trying to look at exporting there. And with um, Oz Trade, and was pretty thinking, oh, it's got good potential here possibly. Um, and Brendan said, I've got. Some um, I've got something I don't want to talk about. Do you want to talk about it now? Uh, I can wait a week and you can sort out your China stuff. I should have said wait a week because I never ever got to look at China again. Uh, but he said he was um, struggling uh, and needed to sell Brew Corp. I tried to help him um, as a friend saying, like, how can I help? Um, I guess I was already doing that and he looked at all opportunities anyway, but Feral had to be sold and um, part of that selling, uh, he made sure that Nail was looked after. Um, so we're both struggling. Um, when we moved from Brewcourt 1, Brewcourt 2, I sold my 50% to 25%. So Feral owned 20, 75% and I owned 25% of Brewcourt. So part of the selling agreement of Feral to CCA was that I had to sell my brew corp to Feral and he made sure that I could keep the same brew kit. The same brew kit, the team and everything kept running as it was uh, because brew corp evolved over those years too, how we ran brew corp. Um, but so now technically became contract brewed, but I got my loan that I had financial stress on paid off so that was relief and then now still brewed there under contract but still the same setup we had it was kind of like it gave me um, financial relief I still had to still hard work so um, need to sell a lot more volume but it uh, gave me a relief financial stress and then we concentrated a lot more on sales and brewing I guess and um, move forward and Brendan Brendan Grimmer came to the Nail team. And he's your marketing manager? Uh, he's sales manager, but he's more than sales. He's kind of works, you know, does a lot of my roles. Um, he's given me relief in my job where he gets a task and I can basically, I've learned, I just keep delegating most <laughs> of my tasks to him. <laughs> so would you recommend, you know, there are so many brewers who are looking to make the very tough numbers of the brewing industry work for them. Um, and collaborative brewing equipment is often something that people look look at. What would you say to, to brewers that were thinking of going in, you know, in partnership, almost like a timeshare arrangement on, on, on a brew kit or something like that? Would, would you recommend it? I think it uh, depends on each individual case. Um, and there's a few different all setups around Australia that do that now, and, and I'm not sure how they all work. I'm sure some would be nightmares, and some would be a step forward into someone getting their own brewery like full on. But um, it's uh, 
you know, really a somewhat a forced step you take. Um, you only do it to save money and to lower financial stress. So um, it's not really a choice, um, but who you choose is important, um, obviously. And I don't know what the answer is to how you choose the right person. Mm. So tell us, you know, where's Nail now? So Nail's, um, we won many awards. We've got strong brand name. In WA, we're um, pretty much in every bottle shop. VPA is our um, our strong brand, which is 45% of probably Nail is our VPA. And it's kind of, it won silver at the World Bear Cup, which is the biggest beer awards in um, the world. And we've kind of got, that brand is strong and respected in WA. So we're still little, but we're finally got it. So it's getting over that volume. We need to get to the million litres, but we're not far from it and we'll be there in the next year or probably next couple of years. And um, hopefully our path is, uh, you know, always look at the moment we've uh, got our agreement with Feral and we have another brewery that, um, helps us to balance that too but um which is a new relationship and we'll see how that unfolds but um that's exciting too but uh the, the template we've got at the moment with working with feral and the contract brewing is uh helping us to get to the next step i don't have to work the mega hours i used to do i kind of um re-energizing uh and i'm a bit smarter than i was when i began and going to make sure I don't get back into financial stress. So we've kind of got a plan together. It might take five years. Uh, depends if there's a government grant out there, we might be take an opportunity to it. But uh, ideally, I'd like to own the land. So I don't have to, um, if I, even if I don't, money, at least, don't make money, at least I end up owning land at the end of it. Um, and But uh, that's the ideal way. But just make sure I can get, hopefully... Two million litres and have the volume and the financing adding up before I go to the what Brewcorp presently is. I'm interested to say that like VPA, because I remember when that was launched and again, so much of the industry that fascinates me is the beers that are huge now didn't even exist. Little Creatures American Pale Ale was what most breweries started on these days. I can't think of a flagship American Pale Ale. Little Creatures was um, great for WA and Australian craft beer. It helped. They struggled at the start. Uh, they were financially struggling. Uh, even their brand was struggling. They changed. Originally, like Little Creatures Pale came out, their name was Live, and they did a rebranding pretty quick in the years. Um, they are smart people. But uh, I think they won ARBA, Best Australasian Beer, in I don't know what year it was, guessing something like... 2005 or something but uh, it could be way out um and that then people in wa particularly um realized that it was a good beer and so they drank it and um realized oh this is what a good beer tastes like and it really educated consumers consumers knew it was a good beer uh and it educated wa breweries and wa consumers and we it was another lift for wa breweries to strive a Head of the other states at the time. The the, the point I was making is that oh, well, styles like no v, v, yeah, so v, Hop, VPA and styles yeah, just Hop, didn't Hop, exist. Hop, that's been around over ten years. So that was a really um, lifting 
uh, little creatures pale to another level. Hop hog help, you know, that's well distributed throughout Australia at the time for its size. And that was a bit of a game changer for hoppy bears. Uh, uh, Stone and Wood specific. Oh, I see that as another one that kind of introduced Galaxy Hops to the market. And I'm a fan of Galaxy Hops and that was kind of the beer that introduced me to it. There's other ones uh, around today I don't know. I'm hoping VPA is one. Uh, it's kind of a, a hoppy beer, but now it's 6.5%. So it's gone up the higher level, alcohol hoppy beer. Um, and clear, not as dark as probably Hop Hog. But that so, in itself is a little bit of a counterintuitive thing because a lot of um, core, like you've got the hype beers at the higher alcohol um, and then the session beers at the lower alcohol. VPA seems to be a beer that looks to sit in that sessionable palate range but with a higher alcohol. So a lot has changed since the University of Ballarat days, but um, people do like lighter, lighter beers. Uh, VPA Very Pale Ale is very pale and light. Uh, it is higher on the alcohol um, not that high on the bitterness, so it's, it's very sessionable, very easy to drink, and um, but a bit dangerous because it uh, has a bit of power at the 6.5%. Hops have, I, I think, not to, don't just give bitterness and aroma, but different hops seem to affect the mood of people. Um, they kind of, I don't know, it's something you can measure, but VPA seems to make people talk louder. <laughs> so I guess we've talked about where Nail is now, what's next, but it's not been an easy journey. Would you do it again? I'm so proud of where Nail is today and I had my dream and I believed and knew I was going to be um, where I am today, which is still a long way to go, but I believed and had no doubt about it, but I had... I had no understanding or any reality to how hard it was going to be. And um, I love my position at the moment. Um, and I'm uh, proud that I went through to do that. But no way I could do it again at all. <laughs> like, I, we're, like, we're older I'm, though. Like at, it... at the moment, I'm even, it's hard to, like, I'm re-energizing, ready to do it again. I know what's required this time to do it again. It takes a lot of energy. Problems come up that you don't expect. Um, it's it, it sounds like a dream owning a brewery, but it can be uh, kill you really. You were involved in you know, back when the what the craft beer industry association that became the Independent Brewers Association. You. Were, were present uh, for that. You, you were involved in the very early Wobba days, so you've you've seen the state-based associations. You were very strongly involved with the what came to be known as the Real Craft Beer Association. I was founding president of Wobba, I think, two thousand and one, with great supporters around that breweries around today, like um, uh, Yarn Brookner and Last Drop, and we had there was probably only seven of us there at the time, but they all put in and we all had the same problems we had uh, and we all struggled but our minds together helped work on the problems I don't actually know if we got any progress on working on the problems but we did create unity and friendship of the same path and we created WA breweries getting together and creating unity um, uh, also helped a little bit with Vami and Samba and 
New South Wales Brewers Guild start after Wobba, um, giving him some information on what we did to start. It was ve- it's very important. Like Wobba today is a lot stronger than seven people we had at the beginning, but it's it's still got the same a lot of volunteer work and so many people put into its wearing. The CBIA or the Independent Brewers Association when it started, that was only Brendan was involved with that and. That's the only argument Brendan and me would have about, because I was firm with Wobber and he was firm with the CB, uh, the Craft Beer... Industry effect. Association, yeah. as it was. I think it was Beer Limited before then. But, uh. Yeah, so the name of that's changed a lot, which makes it hard for me to remember. But uh, we had arguments because I believe strongly that Wobber needed to exist, continue to exist, and many Wobber breweries did too, that we can't get rid of Wobber because that's our safety to many things and keeping our um, strength together for the future problems. So that was the problem with the National Association. They wanted to get rid of the State Association. So it, we couldn't get unity if both couldn't exist together. So that created a war between Brendan and me only as uh, an argument uh, with best mates, but um, it was the only time we used to argue. But you're involved in, quite apart from Wobba, you were also active when the Real Craft Beer Association came along. You were a bit of a defender for, for, for it, even if you weren't officially in, involved. David Hollier, you've got to respect someone that has balls and strength and dedicates their time to their belief. And I admire David and Janet um, and what they've done, one, they, um, my, because I was a steward at Australian International Beer Awards when I was um, studying at University of Ballarat back in late 1990s, and my dream was to win the champion beer at ARBA. And they, um, Red Oak were the first Australian brewery to win champion beer. Uh, he'd been, they'd um, become my hero from winning that. Uh, and he, uh, always respect when I go to Sydney and having the time to catch up and have a beer with them and we have the same understanding and we're different people but uh, believe the same thing and have the passion for beer um, a lot of people he got slugged a lot for that but he helped you know you know fight for uh, independent breweries really before independence was a thing yeah so, John, I just suddenly realised the time this has been one of the longest conversations, and you and I are going to be uh, chatting even after the mic uh, stops. I suspect, but sounds like a good idea. Is there anything else that you know, again, like um, it, there's twenty odd years of uh, of beer history, and you know, like we we've played some practical jokes on the industry mm. um, over, over over the years. There's mm. been there, there's been a lot, but is there anything that stands out for you that you you know that you haven't mentioned? Uh, I think I've mentioned everything. I guess probably. So people that are listening are mainly consumers and the consumers are what give passion to brewers and brewery owners and uh, seeing them support the local their local beers and saying compliments to the brewery and like Chris Rufus who he lives in Newcastle isn't uh, Nail's kind of number one fan we've got a few of them but you know people like that inspire me and keep me going through the tough times and so people that love craft beer you know show you know it's, we love you buying the beer uh seeing you buy it not just financially but the seeing people like it and showing your voice and support to the local breweries is i think in particular times how the economy is and the world is changing is um 
hopefully more consumers can get behind local craft beer. I think that's as good a place to end it on as anything. So, uh, John Stallwood, thank you. It's been a pleasure watching. Uh, I know it hasn't always been a pleasure for you, but it's been a pleasure for me to watch uh, as Nail has grown and developed and changed. It's been a pleasure talking to you about it today. It's a uh, pleasure always having a beer with you, Matt. Thanks. And that was John Stallwood from Nail Brewing. I forgot to bring any Yeti Rambler mugs with me, so I'll have to post one to John. It will be very nice for him to drink his clout stout out of. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cry Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cry Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and they are proud sponsors of Brews News Week and Beer is a Conversation.